check out my new book, Reach All Readers at reachallreaders.com. When you pre-order, you'll get special access to my Science of Reading mini course. Learn more at reachallreaders.com. Hello, this is Anna Geiger from The Measured Mom, and today I'm speaking with Linda Diamond. Linda Diamond is a co-author of the Teaching Reading Sourcebook, which is a big purple book. It's fabulous, very thick, very long, very useful, very readable about how to teach reading, and it covers all the grade levels. It's used in some schools of higher ed for helping their teacher candidates learn how to teach reading according to the science of reading. In her long career, she has focused on teaching children to read, especially those with word reading difficulties like dyslexia. And she's worked as a public school teacher, a principal, director of curriculum and instruction, and more. Today, we zero in on a particular topic. So she recently wrote a white paper about differentiating small group instruction from the start versus teaching a whole group phonics lesson and then differentiating. So I hope that you can listen today and think about how you might be able to make some aspects of this work in your situation. Let's get started. Welcome, Linda. Hi, thanks for having me, Anna. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us about small group reading primarily, but maybe we'll talk on some other things as well. First, could you introduce yourself and let us know what you've done in your career? Sure. Well, I'm Linda Diamond. I'm the author of the Teaching Reading Source Book, also Assessing Reading Multiple Measures. The source book is used in many of the universities that are doing a good job preparing teachers. I launched CORE, CORE Learning, uh, oh gosh, must have been 1994. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And then I retired in uh, 2020. Mm -hmm. and began doing some consulting for publishers, for state departments, and for uh, policy makers that are writing legislation pertaining to reading science, structured literacy. And I also led the analyst team that reviewed teacher prep uh, syllabi for NCTQ. So that's Mm -hmm. what I've been doing of late. I'm, I don't tell people I'm retired anymore. I say I'm unretired. <laughs> that seems to be the, the uh, theme for a lot of people that I talk to on the podcast. They're, they're never done. Right. So I, I often recommend the Core Source book just for anybody who's listening who hasn't heard of it. They should definitely look into it. Um, it's a very thick, accessible book. The, what makes it great for a uh, college or university class is that it covers all the grade levels, you know, in elementary versus just, you know, primary grades. And it also is extremely clear and practical. So there's a lot of lessons scripted out to show you examples of how things would look. So it, yeah, it is truly excellent. And I, I always, I've shared on Instagram and Facebook often to let people know that it's a, it's a must have. So thanks for your part in that. You came to my attention recently because you had published a white paper about small group reading. And as of this recording, you've got a webinar coming up. By the time this comes out, that will already have um, have aired. But the the article or the, the white paper you published, you, you called, it's called Small Group Reading Instruction and Mastery Learning, The Missing Practices for Effective and Equitable Foundational Skills Instruction. And you talked about a concern you had that too often a lot of the elements of reading instruction are taught in whole class instead of according to student needs. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, And indeed, there will be two different webinars coming out. Uh, One with the Science of Reading Facebook group, what I should have learned in college, and one with the Center for the Collaborative Classroom. So if we go back and look at the research, 
what we'll see is that most of the researchers that are often cited as making up the science of reading with their mm -hmm. work reference small group instruction, not just because they did their studies with small group instruction, but because they found the greatest efficacy with mm -hmm. small group instruction. And this goes back probably to the work that Benjamin Bloom did when he talked about the importance of differentiating and meeting kids at their skill needs. Um, and then we have Siegfried Engelman of direct instruction. And all of the direct instruction programs were designed with placement, which is key, to small group instruction. And I was trained by Siegfried Engelman. Okay. We have a number of uh, curricula that are still DI programs, reading mastery, language for learning, for example. And then we have a lot of what we call little DI. They're based okay. on the same principles. Yes. Uh, SIPs would be an example. Bookworms would be an example. And um, Success for All certainly utilized the same explicit, systematic, small group mastery approach to mm -hmm. instruction. So the reason I'm saying it's a missing part is that what's happened in the science of reading community, of which I'm a strong proponent, mm -hmm. and structured literacy is we're teaching the word recognition skills, and I'm really focusing on those skills. Okay. Um, and if we think about Hollis Scarborough's reading rope, we have the word recognition skills that need to become increasingly automatic, mm -hmm. and that's your phonemic awareness and phonics, decoding. And then we have and sight words, then we have the language comprehension or linguistic comprehension, vocabulary, syntax, um, genre, literacy mm -hmm. concepts. And those are not increasingly automatic. They're increasingly strategic. Uh, another way to think of them is the word recognition skills are also referred to as constrained skills. And that's because they can be taught and mastered, if taught well, in a constrained amount of time. Mm -hmm. Whereas reading comprehension, language comprehension, writing, vocabulary, syntax, those are unconstrained because they continue to develop over time. Text gets more complex. Vocabulary gets more complex. So I'm really talking about why teaching word recognition skills in small group instruction, di differentiated small group instruction right from the start okay. is important. And interestingly enough, Dr. Stephanie Stoller just wrote about this. Literally, it hit my uh, desk this morning. Mm -hmm. So it's part of her listserv. <laughs> yep. um, we know that when we're teaching word recognition, we want to be able to hear the students. We want to be able to see their mouths when they're articulating. We want to be able to have many opportunities for response and the ability to give corrective feedback on the spot. 
Mm-hmm. You can't do that well in a whole class setting with 25 to 30 kids. But with a small group, we can really attend to them and we can push them much farther. And one of the things Sharon Vaughn said, one of the key researchers, is she really worries about these students who are obviously going to struggle from the start. And when they're in the whole class, they already are missing it. But when they're in the small group, even with grade level phonics skills, we can catch it and we can accelerate them and move them much more quickly to get through those grade level skills. And and we just can't do that in a whole class. Um, and that's why I I have said they're missing. And they're missing largely because the publishers of most textbook materials teach word recognition from the start in a whole class setting and then recommend that you differentiate. Well, that differentiation is too late for the kids who already were struggling and already felt lost. And for those kids, and there are those kids, and if you're familiar with Nancy Young's ladder of reading and writing, we do have a group of kids who start school already reading. They're bored. And we can keep moving kids at their skill level if we work at a small group structure for word recognition. I'm not advocating that for all the language comprehension, the text reading, we need to build that community as we're reading complex text and listening to stories and discussing vocabulary. But we can get these constrained skills mastered in a relatively short amount of time if we do it right. I was thinking about this the other day when I was helping my fourth grader with her piano practice. And so we have six kids and we're teaching them all piano. And I thought, you know, this kind of matches up because it would never work to have all of them have a, have a whole group piano lesson, of course, because they're all at such different levels. But if we were going to have like a music appreciation time, that would make sense. So the difference between constrained and the skills that continue on, why do you think, what are the reasons why small group instruction has been found to be more effective than teaching these types of skills in a whole class? Well, it's, it's for the reasons I said that I think are important. I want to be able to see these kids and hear yeah. them. I want mm-hmm. them close to me. I want to be able to catch those students who are not getting it. They're, they're not being successful. Because then, in a multi-tiered system, let's say yeah. I'm doing my small groups right from tier one, but I'm mm-hmm. seeing and hearing these students who even with my small group intensive explicit instruction, they're not quite getting it. I can now double dose in tier two and I know exactly who needs it. And I can give them more opportunities to respond and I can make a targeted correction. And those are the predominant reasons. And then with my students who are already advanced, You know, if they come to school already reading CVC and long vowel words, why would I start them there? Mm -hmm. So a key to this working 
is knowing where kids are. So placement tests are critical. Only a few of the published curricula, the ones I named, uh, actually have built-in placement tests. So we have another tool. We can use one of our screeners and begin to look across them as Stephanie Stoller just did in her nice uh, report today, where we can see the lowest skills and start to think about how we can use that information along with some survey assessments where we dig deeper. Which phonics skills mm -hmm. uh, do they have they mastered? Which haven't they? And then we can start to group these kids. And then we're meeting them at their skill level, which is mm -hmm. really, really critical. I think one challenge that teachers might have is they, they have these things that they want to fit into their um, word reading lesson. So maybe um, they start with a phonemic awareness warm up. They teach the new phonics skill. They have some blending practice and some word building, some dictation and some decodable text reading. But that can be take a long time. Do you have any suggestions for that, like how to, like an, an ideal length of a small group lesson and how to fit them all in? Sure. So Shanahan talked about this as well. Um, we're really looking at word recognition lessons not taking much more than about 30 minutes in total. And that includes what you talked about. It's, it's that quick, short phonemic awareness because once they're already decoding, we don't keep doing oral-only phonemic awareness. We link it rapidly to the letters. Um, we're quickly doing uh, enough work with encoding, decoding and encoding, and we're working on reading those decodable texts. That can happen in about 30 minutes. So the question then becomes, what's the rest of the class doing, mm -hmm. right? That's gonna be a challenge. If a teacher has two groups, which is the ideal, then while one group is doing their direct work with the teachers, the teacher might not get to the decodable books with that group. She might only get to the phonics instruction and the decoding and encoding, and then move to another group, and then come back for the decoding while the other group, probably the higher group, is doing um, more work, more practice, and then they get their decodable text. You can do a quick read of the decodable in the same first sitting and then have them reread during their seat time. The ideal is not to exceed two groups. And the challenge is how to do that um, and what we found out is that the schools that do it effectively do it across the school. Mm -hmm. They do it at least across two or three grade levels where they regroup kids. Uh, that's what Success for All did. That's what Reading Mastery does. That's what Bookworms does. We call it a walk to reading model. And so no teacher has more than two in her class at okay. a time. However, if you don't have a whole school, then it becomes a challenge. And there are ways to overcome that challenge. 
Well, before we get into that for a second, so when you said not exceeding two groups, do you mean not exceeding two groups that a single teacher has to teach, or do you mean her whole class should only be divided into two groups? Not exceeding two groups that a teacher has to teach. Okay, that the makes class, more sense. The class, <laughs> it's very possible. In fact, we've seen this when we give placement tests that we may have as many as four or five different skill levels. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, if I only want to take two, I might take a very low one and say a middle one. My colleague might take the highest one and another one. Mm -hmm. And I'm taking her kids that fit. But we want to still keep the group size down to about six to eight. Mm -hmm. So that regrouping across the school with added adult support, most of those schools that have done it very effectively have other adults who become highly trained mm -hmm. and deliver the curriculum. Now, you have to understand that most of these direct instruction or little DI curricula are scripted. Mm -hmm. And we can teach paraprofessionals, parents, and even high school students mm -hmm. how to teach these curricula. And that's what uh, those of us who were trained by Siegfried Engelman did often. Mm -hmm. So we were able, and, and now a lot of schools have coaches and interventionists as well. Mm -hmm. um, when I was a building principal of a middle school, a fifth through eighth grade middle school with very, very low performance, um, my fifth graders were doing a DI intervention program, corrective reading. Mm -hmm. And uh, I took the lowest group. Okay. It also was a nice break for me as a principal. I couldn't be bothered with other yes. things during that time. So there are ways to do it if there's the will to do it and the understanding that it's important. So imagine, and of course this is true in some cases where the, a teacher wants to do this, but they are kind of alone, yeah. a lone wolf. There's nobody else is on board. What are some things they can do to make this work? Is there some things they can pull out and just do as whole group? And then, so they have abbreviated small groups or how would you recommend they go about it? Yes. So we have a school like that, uh, that I've worked with. It's one of our uh, Bureau of Indian Education schools. Now the Bureau of Indian Education schools, many of these on the reservation are tiny. They might mm -hmm. have anywhere from three to five teachers so regrouping across a whole school is difficult, if not impossible. Mm -hmm. So what we've done and what we've seen that these schools have done is they have trained parents. Hmm. And um, the beauty of that, many of these very tiny schools have high teacher turnover, particularly on the reservation. By training parents, not only are they giving skills to their BIPOC populations, they're also training their next generation of teachers. Mm -hmm. And um, so parents have come in the classroom. And that can be done with a single teacher. The other thing that you can do is when you see you have too many groups to possibly manage, mm -hmm. you're going to make some decisions. 
where you're going to push the mid to high into one group. Okay. And then just the low is another. So you still don't have more than two. So it's not a perfect one-to-one skill placement, but it's close. And you could do reviews of sound spellings together. Mm -hmm. You do as long as they're quick. You could again have kids rereading their own decodable silently while the other group is with you. And they can be doing much more work now that we have some very effective computer programs. We also can have a group working on a program that reinforces um, with our DI programs. We did have a a very good computer program that could reinforce. And if we have other curricula that can reinforce, we can bring those in so that some kids are on the computer while the teacher is providing direct instruction. But here's the key. And Anita Archer talks about this all the time. This instruction should be short, brisk, zippy, and mm-hmm. not have to take a lot of time. Perky pace. <laughs> yes. Perky pace. Um, do you have any more suggestions for what the students can be doing when they're not meeting with the teacher? Well, in our uh, DI programs and in uh, many of these programs, they have their own independent work built in. They okay. may include alphabet practice where students are, again, matching, say, uppercase, lowercase letters, handwriting, where they're forming and working on forming their letters. They're definitely doing rereading in decodable text. Mm -hmm. Um, Or if they're past that stage, they're able to read in text that's more authentic, but they're doing it for rereading practice. They also can be working on their handwriting, And they're also matching a letter to pictures that might start with that letter. Um, Those are the various things. Typically, in small group instruction at the start, some skills need to be taught to the whole class right at the beginning so that Mm -hmm. everyone could do them when Mm -hmm. they're in small groups. And that would have to do with letter recognition, alphabet, letter formation, maybe some connection of picture to words that start with the sound. Um, And and similarly, you could have some vocabulary where they're matching a picture to a word if it's a word that they've already heard and they Mm -hmm. know that word. So if they've also been taught a set of high-frequency words, they can be re-practicing those words those are all examples. What, what would you say um, when teachers who like to use the whole group method and then differentiate after would say, well, um, it's giving them all exposure to the grade level skill, so that's being more fair, or it's giving them um, access to grade level skills because they might not get there by the end of the year. How would you respond to that? Okay, so I love that question. Um, first of all, exposure is not, does not lead to mastery. Only mm-hmm. mastery leads to mastery. 
And could you um, define mastery real quick before you move yes. on? Yes. Uh, mastery is when you achieve that automaticity that is so important that Linnea Airy talks about all the time. If we don't have automaticity, we aren't going to have comprehension. So we want automaticity. And the way that these curricula that are structured this way do this is they make sure that in each lesson, only about um, 90% of the, about 90% of the lesson are previously learned skills. Okay. And there's about 70% new. And what that does is it means kids have a high success rate. You want to see them about 90% of the time getting the skills they already were taught right. Because remember, you're still interleaving skills mm -hmm. throughout. But when they see those that they've already learned, you want them to get them right 90% of the time. Okay. Whereas the new skills, at least at the first attempt, 70% of the time get it right. And then okay. you can reteach and correct. And if they start to achieve that mastery, we'll be able to build. And we'll be able to build more swiftly because the student's not frustrated. The problem with exposure if I am a student who is struggling, and let's say I spent 30 minutes, which is what most of the publishers have for those skills in whole class instruction, um, hopefully not more, mm -hmm. um, and I didn't understand or master much of it, mm -hmm. then I have essentially lost 30%, uh, 30 times minutes rather. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I differentiate and I get say 20 minutes targeted, maybe 30 if I'm lucky in tier two. So now I've had about 30 minutes where I was lost much of the time. Okay. And I've now had about 30 minutes where I'm really targeted. And it's those skills I need. They could be the grade level skills. They could be skills I missed from the grade level before. I don't just skip over them because mm -hmm. these build these mm -hmm. word recognition skills. If I started tier one in a small group, I could have 30 minutes right at my skill need. And then if I have to double dose, yeah. I could have another 20 or 30. Now I've have 50 minutes at my targeted need. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important distinction for those students who already came reading, I know what their parents say, <laughs> and um, they're bored fairly mm -hmm. early on when they could accelerate. And this really, frankly, gets to, in my opinion, the equity question, okay. which is very important. A lot of people misconstrue grouping as tracking. Yeah. And, and we are talking about grouping at the skill level. And again, yes. word recognition. Well, um, we had some very good research done uh, by a Greek researcher, Viendes, who actually saw the opposite. And so did Lou, who studied small group instruction. 
so did Sharon Vaughn. And we all saw that, in fact, they all got to the grade level standards much more quickly when they had the targeted language instruction. And I, I think of that great graphic that it kind of clarifies the confusion people have about equality versus equity. Um, I don't know if you've seen the image. It's one of my standing favorites. by the fence. Yeah, Is it the, one the, by the three fence? kids standing by the fence, and um, two of them are fairly tall, and one is short, and they're all on the same size boxes. That's equality, and the short mm -hmm. child still can't see over the fence. But you give that child a taller box, and now that child has equal access to the same opportunities. And that's equity, is giving children what they need when they need it. It, it only becomes tracking if we don't have an explicit, systematic, structured, mastery-based, accelerative curriculum. If we yeah. don't realize that we're, we have kids who are stuck, and we just keep doing the same thing, as opposed to really digging in and figuring out what their needs are in order to target. And then we can accelerate. And we see this all the time. We see it with schools, for example, using SIPs, where they give a, a program mastery test every two weeks on what was taught. And they regroup just about every two weeks. Okay. So you'll see kids moving to another teacher or, you know, co others coming to another one because they are not stagnant. And we always have talked about flexible groups. Well, mm -hmm. how do you do it unless yeah. you've done this really good skill-based placement, which Matt Burns is going to talk about? Um, and then this is how we achieve equity, by giving the kids what they need when they need it, not treating everybody the same. And I will tell you, one of the biggest concerns that I hear from my colleagues who work in the multilingual community is that it's all one-size-fits-all mm -hmm. curriculum. And we know that we have children who come to school from, let's say, alphabetic languages who already have developed phonological awareness. And we can move them much more quickly because we can transfer that knowledge. Because of that, I think we need to be mindful for all our children that equity requires giving children what they need when they need it not just treating everyone the same. Well, thank you for explaining that so well. Um, and it sounds to me like you're also saying that when people are choosing a curriculum, they should look for a curriculum that has all this in mind, that, that helps them, gives them materials to help them set up their groups, gives them progress monitoring tools, and even activities for the other kids. And I don't know if that's something people always look for when choosing a curriculum, so that's really good advice. Yeah, they don't. And, you know, <clears throat> those of us old-timers, who were trained by Siegfried Engelman and and then people like Anita Archer, who was also trained by Siegfried Engelman <laughs> and the late John Scheffelbein, who developed SIPs. Yeah. Um, 
having an understanding of direct instruction models Mm -hmm. will help when looking for curriculum. And I have to say, I'm not saying don't do it whole class. I would rather see it done than not done if Mm -hmm. it becomes too much of a struggle. And um, there are some very good whole class curriculum out there. I would say, for example, You Fly Foundations. Um, Holly Lane and her colleagues did a beautiful job. But I'm also saying that we can do even more Mm -hmm. by starting kids in a small group mastery type approach. And yes, it requires some work with the whole school. It requires planning. And it ideally would require having really strong curriculum that's already designed that way. Well, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to the presentations you're giving later this month. And and those will be out already. So I'll be sure to link to the replays, hopefully, if they're available in the show notes. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Any projects you're working on? Uh, Well, let's see. I am working on um, California and Mm -hmm. my home state and uh, where we're headed. Um, We have a number of universities that are starting to revise their teacher prep, which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm engaged with some of them. Um, I'm working with, as I mentioned, a couple curriculum publishers. And we're in the process of making changes or revision. And then I have a project of my own that I've been working on now for over a year with a former colleague, colleague, B.J. Thorsness. And we've been working on a, a curriculum that teaches writing um, from a syntactic grammar approach. Interesting. And uh, that's taken us a long time. What grade is that for? It's targeting really uh, upper elementary through. Um, we, we presume, we're making assumptions that a lot, there are a lot of students who don't really understand uh, a linguistic approach to grammar. And they don't understand the syntax of the sentence and then the paragraph. And um, that's where we're headed with this particular project. Well, that's very exciting. Any guesses when that might be ready? No, (laughs) we thought it would be ready. Um, I would guess we need another year to get done with this. Do you have a publisher already? Nope. We're going to be looking for one. Okay, sorry, because I would keep an I would keep an eye on on publishers newsletters, but I'll just wait wait to hear. Hopefully, this will get announced in the f- big Facebook group once that's ready. Good, thank you. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me and clearing a lot of things up. I really appreciate that. You're very welcome. You can find the show notes for today's episode at themeasuredmom.com forward slash episode one four seven. Talk to you next time. That's all for this episode of Triple R Teaching. For more educational resources, visit Anna at her home base, themeasuredmom.com, and join our teaching community. We look forward to helping you reflect, refine, and recharge on the next episode of Triple R Teaching.